0: The reading we have for this evening is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. That's John, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. We'll read the first 18 verses together. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews. "'Sir,' the invalid replied, "'I have no one to help me into the pool "'when the water is stirred. "'While I am trying to get in, "'someone else goes down ahead of me.' "'Then Jesus said to him, "'Get up, pick up your mat and walk.' "'At once the man was cured. "'He picked up his mat and walked. "'The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, "'and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, "'It is the Sabbath. "'The law forbids you to carry your mat.' So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Thanks be to God for this reading.
1: Well, this, I think, is a very uh, familiar passage to most of you. Uh, this account that Jesus meets a sick man, and we are going to look at this together and see what the Lord has to say to us through it. Uh, this is the last in our series of sermons that we have had in John's uh, John's Gospel, and uh, we've been looking at some of the signs, and here again is one of these that we have before us. Uh, Yes, I want to begin with an illustration. The scorpion and the turtle. There is a connection. It'll come later. Do you ever wonder, illustrations, if there is ever a connection at all? And some preachers just like padding. and Well, anyway, there is The scorpion, being a poor swimmer, which we know, asked the turtle, who was a good swimmer, which we know, if he could ride on his back to cross the river. It's very deep and it's a raging large river. The turtle says, Do you think I'm mad? I know what you'll like, and I know what you'll do. You'll sting me on my neck while I'm swimming, and I will drown. My dear turtle, replied the scorpion, if I were to sting you, we would drown together. And what good would there be in that? Now there's logic in that, replied the turtle. So, hop on my back and I'll take you across. Halfway across, the turtle felt one terrible, venomous sting in his neck. And as they both were sinking to the bottom... The turtle said, in a sort of resigned way, I want to ask you one question. You said to me there was no logic in you stinging me, so why did you do it? To which the drowning scorpion replied, what's logic got to do with it? It's just my character. Scorpions sting. People sin. It's our character. And hopefully in the course of this sermon, there will be a connection with that. Keep it at the back of your mind. What I want you to do is to genuinely uh, sit lightly in your seats because the sermon is not going to be as you would legitimately expect it. Let me give you the picture, because you've had it read from chapter 5. Here is a, a, a situation that is rather obvious. There's lots of needy people. Here is a man who has been disabled for 38 years. Life expectancy was up to 50 for The the, the strongest. So most of his life is behind him. And he's been paralyzed. Got that? Jesus comes along. And. You've read. He heals the man. And of course. This man now is going to live happily ever after. And be a great Christian. And tell everybody about Jesus. Isn't that what happens? Well, I want to give four brief headings, and they will be because we're going to meet at communion. Now, you would have thought that would be the obvious thing. After all, if you have more healings, people would say, well, for sure, God is among you, and that's amazing, and more people will become Christians. Sometimes they do, but not always. So let's, with that uh, introduction, look quickly at four uh, headings. The first is this. What we have here is healing without wholeness. In verses 1 to 5, you've uh, you've got the picture now uh, that uh, in verse 2, in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people, a great number of disabled people, People used to lie blind, lame, paralyzed as a random selection of human need, glaring. Now, we've seen the first two miracles of Jesus that they were private in the sense that when he turned the water into the wine, people didn't know. The servants knew, but nobody else knew. And when Jesus healed uh, the son of the nobleman, it was about that hour, and the nobleman deduced, well, Jesus said that, and that's when you say, must have been him. But now this healing is in your face, not covert, overt. There it is. It's public. And moreover, it's on the Sabbath which we will see in a moment. So it's upfront, public, on the Sabbath. And as a consequence, it becomes the, the beginning of, quote-unquote, the official persecution of Jesus. As if Jesus now is laying before the people, this is what I'm about. And people took exception to that and made plans to get rid of him. Now the location... The pool, which is the sheep gate. It's an area of, of flowing water. Actually, I visited this when I went to the Holy Land, Hannah and I, a long time ago. Um, it's like a spa area. and You get these in this country where people believe there's healing properties. I'm reminded, and here I'll go public and my P45 might be in the post for this illustration, that Hannah and I and two other people went to Lourdes in France. We went to a church quite near, and to our surprise, uh, it was so near, we thought we'd go and visit this place. It's one of the largest pilgrimages in the world for needy people. A vast area where millions of people meet, and on average, uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. And what they do, uh, we were there, the, the people are brought on wheelchairs, and sometimes in beds, and people with all sorts of needs, children to elderly people, and so forth. And uh, they come country by country. You you start with uh, Latin America, and you've got got, uh, the the nuns and the priests lead, and behind they've got the Argentinian flag, they've got the Peruvian flag, the Chilean flag, and so forth. And then uh, Africa, west, east, north, and south, and the flags and and the the nuns and the priests uh, are, are... accompany them, with other attendants, and so forth. Right around, people represent us the whole world, and they come to this particular area, which is a type of large grotto area where the water is flowing, there's a picture of the, not picture, statue of the Virgin Mary, and you have to move quite quickly because there's thousands of people passing, and they want to take the water and cross themselves and pray for healing. It's not a surprise that there's a vast uh, uh, hospice a lot of people die, some are too ill even to go home. And it's that type of situation, not like lords, but where people believe there's healing properties here. There's an interesting, uh, there's an absence of verse 4 where the commentators are not quite sure what it means, where the angel disturbed and, uh, the waters and people would go in and be healed. And the whole point of this man is that he can't. 38 years is a long time to be paralyzed like that so you've got the context something like that and the point shouldn't be missed here in the course of this remarkable healing as you have it in verse 6 if you stay in the narrative and get into it and it's this I, I, I don't want to be crass about this but it's a rather obvious question isn't it if you think you, you've 38 years and somebody would you like to be better Ask me a question. But Jesus does. And it isn't as superficial and silly as we might think. Because Jesus, you see that in verse 6, he asks him. When he saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in that condition a long time. Do you want to get well? Interestingly, he doesn't answer the question. And, here's another observation in verses 8 and 9. He doesn't make any response. Other than he said, uh, I have no one to help me. And Jesus says uh, in verse 8, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured and picked up his mat and walked. That day was the Sabbath. We don't hear. Now, you can't read always into silence, but it's an observation. Healing without wholeness. Secondly, and a bit more quickly, Christianity without commitment. That is very popular today. Or religion without repentance, if you like. And so in verses 9 to 13, you you have the unfolding now of the events post-miracle at once the man was cured picked up his mat and walked the day in which this took place was the sabbath and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed it is the sabbath the law forbids you to carry your mat he replied the man who made me well said to me don't blame me, blame him Amazing. don't forget he's been 38 years and he's healed now I think that's quite extraordinary, don't you? It's it's not the way that you would have thought the sermon would or should unfold. How long would it take you? Just put yourself in his position, if you can. It's very hard, I know. There you are. You've had this massive problem for 38 years. And Jesus has healed you. How long would it take you to ask who he was? Now, I'm no. Go back and stand in his situation. So, is the problem something else? He, yes, he has been physically healed. You can see it. He's walking, he's carrying his bed, his mat. But is he actually, is there a cumulative effect that he's lived in a dependency culture all his life and actually he quite likes it? Having all this sympathy, people feeling sorry for him, that over a period of time he's become a sort of an emotional cripple and that his inner paralysis is greater than his outer one. I didn't think the sermon would unfold like this, but, but you, you, you have to ask the question, what's going on here? Has he, as he spent a whole life feeling that he's been hard done by, that nobody understands him, and he really feels terribly sorry for himself, and actually quite enjoys it? And if all of that is taken away from him, which it is, what's he going to do? He was soaking up all this sympathy. And enjoying it. And interestingly this man seeks no identity. Or relationship with Jesus at all. He accepts the gift. And he ignores the giver. Okay. Let's. Keep seeing how this works out. Look, thirdly, here is grace without gratitude. You see it in verse 14. Later, Jesus found him, not he found Jesus. He's not looking for Jesus. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, and I think by this he was really miffed with Jesus. See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you, quote unquote. Now, we're not saying that all sickness is a result of sin. Sometimes it is. Often it isn't. We know that. But there are two things here, what theologians call common grace and saving grace. God is good to all people, above and beyond what people deserve in any shape or form. And there are people who daily take God's gifts and even deny his existence. But there's also saving grace in the sense that we have an encounter with God and he changes us and we have his spirit, what Jesus called being born again. What you see here is massive absence of gratitude. I well remember the first year in this village nearly 31 years ago. 32 years ago, speaking to a village man who'd been married over 50 years and his wife had died. I'll never forget this. It was something... something happened inside me. That here was a man who had no thought of God, but his wife had died. And he spent the rest of his life complaining about God. He'd had 50 years of happy marriage... And spent the rest of his life criticising God. Now there's something perverse about that. Grace without gratitude. Now to be fair, in verse 15, did he inform on Jesus because of fear? Now, let's give him credit. Let's, uh, it may well be. The man who had been healed had no idea who, who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later on he found him. and then in verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews, now that it was Jesus who made him well. Uh, peer pressure isn't just for teenagers, but I believe it. Did he inform on Jesus knowing the consequences? He was a Jew after all. He knew he was breaking the Sabbath. He knew there was going to be trouble. Out of fear. Fear can make us do that. Peer pressure. Inner pressure. There's another dimension here. And it's this. He's got to do something now that he hasn't done before. You know what it is? It's the Monday morning syndrome. He's got to work. All his life. He's been living off handouts. And now he's got to stop being dependent. Have you ever? This happened to me in Oxford recently. I saw somebody sitting down and asked me for money, and I said, I'll buy you uh, some uh, pizza. He said, I'd really rather have the money. Well, I said, I will buy you pizza. And as a consequence, I did. I said, you know, if you have a problem, and I don't know, giving you money is not going to help. But But if you've lived like that, in that sort of dependency culture, and and, and you're dependent on other people's consciences to give, now he's on his own. Now he's standing, literally, on his own two feet. And what is this reference in verse 14? Stop sinning, start repenting. It's not easy being a preacher, you know, and I'm sure it isn't. When, when, when you know, you're challenged in the pulpit and people say, well, what right do you have to say that to me? Stop sinning. Start repenting. Put things right. Stop complaining and start thanking. Complaining can be sort of a habit that builds up. Like a dependency over the years. Layer upon layer upon layer. 38 years. And then the last thing here. And it's this. Here is religion without relationship. It's very common. Religion without relationship. Verses 16 to 18. uh, God gave the Sabbath. It was a blessing, a respite from work, of grinding toil, a day to enjoy, a day to be blessed. Now, in our society, we've lost the concept of that, not just because of the secular influence, but because so many things do the work for us. And people would look forward to this day. It's a gift of grace. And the Pharisees have turned it into into rules and regulations. They've made it something rigid and inflexible. And God's doing good things and people resent him for that. He's still doing good things and people still resent him for that. And in this it gives an opportunity for Jesus to lay claim humbly That he is God almighty. And they got the message. It wasn't. Oh this is a complicated sermon. Didn't understand that. The problem was. It was an easy message. They did understand it. And they didn't like it. Verse 17. Jesus said to them. My father is always. At his work. To this very day. And I too am working. That's it. And the response for this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. They got the message. Sin is a very powerful thing. I don't just mean in, in its obvious form, but in its subtle impact on our lives. And we ignore it at our peril. It, it, it affects our thinking, our living, our relating. It causes us to turn in on ourselves. So what's the conclusion? Here you have God's sovereignty in Jesus Christ and people suffering. And I think you could pause this question or really make a statement. It's not fair. I mean, look, you 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 can see in verse three that uh, there are a great number of disabled people were there. Why this man? And why such ingratitude? And what a strange response. It's not fair, is it? Surely if Jesus had gone to somebody else, they would have been so grateful and followed him and said, I'll do anything now. But in a way, true fairness has nothing to do with this. Nothing at all. It is grace that is undeserved mercy. I'll just make one comment about the whole issue while we're at it about uh, healing. and uh, There's an interesting book called The Healing Epidemic. And sadly some Christians become terribly disillusioned because of the absence of healing. I think it's something that we do need to grasp with integrity. Contrary to what is said and the claims that are made Certainly from the New Testament, the Gospels, Jesus did not always heal everybody. certainly is the case here. So you'd want to look at this perhaps through a different perspective for the moment. And I'm sure that you know people in in your family that you've prayed and they've died. You'd hope that they get well and they haven't. And some people have said it's just a denial of God's love or grace or I don't pray enough or I'm not spiritual enough or whatever. Here's another interesting thing. Jesus never called a healing meeting. There were meetings for healing, but not in that sense. And another interesting thing that there were people who were healed like this man and we've no account of their coming to faith. Now, this doesn't mean, therefore, that Jesus couldn't heal everybody. But it does mean that he didn't heal everybody. So, to the question, can God heal? The answer is yes. Does God always heal? No. Now, you may, at that point, feel you have a right to ask, why? All right, take it to him then. Take it to him. Why is it that we behave in such irrational ways? What is it about us that we have this capacity for self-destruct or self-destroying of relationships like the parable of the scorpion and the turtle? Why are we like that? Of course, there's much discussion, if I was to interview Nigel now, to say, why is it people believe in certain ways? he said, well, there are two, two options. One, it's nature, one, it's nurture. One, it's in my genes, one, it's in my environment. I behave accordingly. Well, to some extent that's true, but there's something else at work here. How do you square the circle of this man's monumental ingratitude? It's quite something, isn't it? It's not the way you were expecting the sermon. Not me, certainly. Healing without wholeness. Christianity without commitment. Grace without gratitude. And a religion void of relationship. The challenge here is this. That whatever our experience is, however difficult, whatever the heartaches, whatever the disappointments, the lack of healing or positive answers to prayer, we should learn, from even if it's a negative lesson, that we should trust in the Lord Jesus. Trust him. Trust him. And maybe he will come and meet with you in a way that you wouldn't expect and bring blessing and healing in the, in the wholeness of that sense.